you have your copy of the scriptures, would you turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2. We consider our series through this book of Colossians, making our way through Paul's letter to this group of faithful saints. And this morning we're going to be considering Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at the last few paragraphs, beginning in verse 16, and we'll make our way, Lord willing, through verse 23. Colossians 2, let's hear God's word beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting upon asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as though... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Would you pray with me as we've just heard God's word? Let's ask him to be faithful to his promise that we would not only hear it, but by the work of his spirit, he would cause it to bear good fruit in our lives. Father, as we've considered your holiness, your grandeur, your, your greatness and your perfections this morning, as we've considered ourselves as who we are in light of our being created by you and for you. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have to think very far back. We don't have to consider even beyond this own morning to recognize that we are not who we want to be. Especially when we consider that you have made us for your purposes to reflect your glory. Lord, we see how often that we we fail in that. We know how often, even in the very language of Scripture here, the indulgence of the flesh, that it rises up, that it overtakes us. Lord, we are a people who, by your grace, we long for change. We long to not remain as we are. We long to to mature and to grow. And though we might not even know what the purpose of that change may be, Lord, we know that you have designed your good purposes to change us and to grow us, to conform us to the image of your Son. So, Lord, would you help us this morning to see with great clarity and precision from the revelation of your word, not only that you desire for us to change and to grow, but that your Son, our mediator, the Lord Jesus, is the perfect means and the only means to bring about that change that we so desperately need. Father, we pray that you be faithful this morning to convict us, to show us in those very areas that we're apathetic or overlooking or just even ignorant of. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us, 
that you would show us the great comfort that comes and the means by which real and lasting change does come. We pray that you would show us the the great splendor of Christ and what it means to be united to him. And Lord, that you would give us great confidence in your faithfulness to not only save a people unto yourself, but to sanctify us and to bring us into full glory, to, to be conformed to the image of your Son in perfection. Lord, help us to see our place in your story. Help us to see your Son and his great purpose in your plan of redemption, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at the core of Christianity, at the core of the Christian faith, is the necessity and the promise of change. Change is necessary because by nature, a Christian is someone who experiences new birth. We are given a new attitude. We are a new creation. And in this new creation, we have new attitudes towards sin and new abilities to pursue righteousness. But change is also quite promising. It's promising in that we hear that when God begins a good work, He finishes it. That this promise of change is certain. It's not left in question. It's not left hanging in the air. That the Christian faith is most certainly an understanding of the necessity and the promise of change. And that's good news. But how do people change? That can be confusing. That can be a stumbling block. That can be quite frustrating at times. Specifically, how does God change us while we live here on earth? How are we to deal with the pressures of work, raising a family, caring for aging parents? What means has God provided for our struggles with lust, for anger, for discouragement, becoming self-consumed? Essentially, what we're asking is, how do we live between this, in this gap between our conversion and our ultimate glorification? How are we to live as faithful Christians, as who we are now, and yet knowing who we shall be eventually? What is that gap meant to look like? How are we to live in that? Well, the answer to these questions really drives right at the heart of a massive problem within the church of Colossae. And if we're honest, we would admit that it remains a problem for us today in our culture, in our county, in our church. The problem within the Colossian church, it was an apathy. It was not the sort of church that just shrugged their shoulders at the concerns of the indulgence of the flesh, or the concerns of the culture that they lived in, or the concerns of demonic activity and people being deceived or deluded. The problem was not apathy. These Christians, if you read through the letter, they were concerned about stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They were concerned about growth and godliness. If you were to talk to them after morning worship, they would talk to you about much of the same things that you and I hopefully are talking about. The problem within this body of believers could be summed up as an example of good desires met with wrong application. Their impulse was correct. Their application, the direction they moved, was of concern for the Apostle Paul. The problem here that Paul is speaking to, the false teaching that he's refuting while others are promoting, is that spiritual growth most certainly comes. 
But the false teaching is that it came by submitting to certain regulations, self-imposed restrictions that you bring upon yourself, alongside the person of Christ. Do you want to change? Do you know Christ? Wonderful. Do you really want to change? Do you really want to grow in your faith? Do you really want to experience God? Then you need to be doing these things. Meaning, enjoyment of the presence of God, which we all should want. Victory over sin, which every Christian wants. Comes, according to these false teachers, by Christ and submission to these regulations, according to this program. So here's the argument of Paul's writing here. Essentially what he says in the end of chapter 2 is that if we are united to Christ, then we can expect that change will not come by supplementing Christ, but by considering the sufficiency of Christ. At the heart of Paul's concern is not simply that we must change, but how we change. And so he gives them some instruction, and then he gives them his reasoning. So let's look back at verse 16. What is the instruction that Paul gives to these faithful saints and his concern for their delusion? Verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting upon asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The therefore, in verse 16, it points us back to the previous context, doesn't it, of verses 6 through 15. And if you remember back in verse 8, Paul, he's laying out his ultimate concern for these Christians, deceptive and persuasive teaching. He's concerned about deceptive and persuasive teaching. And then in verses 9 through 15, he unpacks this a bit further, explaining, okay, what does it mean to be in Christ? What is given to us by the mere fact that we are united to him? And now what we're considering this morning in verses 16 through 23, he turns his sights to the false teaching itself. He's held up, this is who Christ is, and now he's laying alongside of it the reality and the implications of this false teaching, showing that it's just human tradition, and it's not at all according to this Christ that he's just spoken of. So the instruction in this section is really marked off by two statements. Perhaps you noticed them as we read. The the first statement's in verse 16 where he says, let no one pass judgment on you. The second statement's in verse 18 where he says, let no one disqualify you. Those two let no one statements are essentially the essence of his instruction to this church. Pleading with them, do not do this. So what does he say first? He says, let no one pass judgment there in verse 16. And the concern of judgment or the the matter of judgment has everything to do with food and drink and festivals. The inference here 
as the, the experience of fullness, or we might say authentic, genuine, vital, living Christian experience, the concern is that that comes by observing certain regulations. And what's interesting is that these same terms that Paul uses here, food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, they are used seven times in the Old Testament scriptures. And in each case, when they are used, they're referring to the full number of religious days given to the kingdom of Israel. It's kind of an umbrella statement of certain distinctive marks that were given to the kingdom of Israel. There are seven. I'm just going to read you one. Second Chronicles 2.4, if you remember what's happening there, the dedication of the temple. Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him, for the regular arrangement of the showbread, and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained for Israel forever. Every Old Testament use of this phrase that Paul uses here in verse 16 has to do with this time, fullness of time-related observance given to the kingdom of Israel. This includes not only the Passover feast, but you can think of some of the other commanded feasts, which they were to come up to Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the Feast of Harvest. This includes not only the weekly Sabbath, but the seven-year Sabbath, six years, and then the Sabbath, the seventh year rest. It includes the year of Jubilee every 50 years. All of those ordained feasts, regulations, food and drinks, new moons and Sabbath, that's the umbrella statement of the demarcations of the Old Testament covenant given to the kingdom of Israel. And these false teachers here in the church of Colossae passing judgment on these followers of Christ who are not adhering to these standards. Let no one judge you, is what Paul is saying. And the reason that Paul says this sort of judgment is unfounded and the teaching is erroneous is right there in verse 16. That even in their legitimate Old Covenant context, they are just a shadow The substance, the reality is Christ. He's basically saying, what was the purpose of all of those festivals? What was the purpose of the the booths and the tabernacles and the, the bread? Was it that? Was that the end to celebrate the feast? He's saying, no. Even in their legitimate use, they were the shadow pointing to Christ, who is the substance. They were the practices ordained by God, given to Israel for his covenant with them. Okay, and well, what was the purpose of the old covenant? And by old covenant, we're including, and we mean the covenant made with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. What was the purpose of the old covenant? Well, the purpose of the old covenant was to provide the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, the mediator of the new covenant. And so, to insist upon these old covenant feasts and regulations... Paul says, you're misunderstanding the purpose. And anybody who tries to bring you under them, they are misunderstanding the purpose. They are a shadow. Christ is the substance. How ridiculous is this? It would be like a small child who's waiting for his father to come home 
from a long trip, anticipating every hour, every day, till once he hears the car pull up into the driveway, he sees dad walk up the sidewalk. This boy bursts through the front door and he begins leaping for joy, talking to his dad's shadow. And he begins to look down at the ground, rejoicing over his dad's shadow, seeking to hug his dad's shadow. Meanwhile, his father stands directly behind him, scratching his head, saying, What are you doing? I'm right here. And the the silliness of such a child doing such a thing is exactly what Paul is saying. Those are the shadows. Christ is the substance. To be judged by not being obsessed with the shadow makes no sense. Let no one pass judgment on you concerning these things. They're a shadow. Christ is the substance. That's his first instruction. The second one, remember, is in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you. The concern over disqualification in these false teachers is that they were insisting that unless you followed these regulations, you were unworthy, you were unfit, you were unclean to worship God. In short, Paul's concern was over three A's here, asceticism, angels, and what we could say, arrogance, all in verse 18. Let's define those terms. Asceticism. It's this voluntary abstention from the enjoyment of physical and social needs. It's this idea that food or drink or even marital intimacy, sleep, clothes, wealth, social interaction, it's that by abstaining from those, denying yourself of those things, puts you in a place of more spiritual attunement, more refined holiness, more maturity. It's a willful separation from those things to say, I'm really devoted. He also mentions the worship of angels. And the stress upon asceticism lays the groundwork for the worship of angels, meaning I've got to purify myself, prepare myself so that I can see these visions of angels and really enter into an experiential understanding of what it means to worship this God. And then we could just say this is just wrapped up by those who are leading in such arrogance, self-importance. This person who's claiming to be an insider, like, look, do you really want to worship Christ? You seem pretty serious about your faith. Let's meet up. Some things that I've seen, not everybody sees this, but I really want to share these with you because I think you'll really appreciate the sort of things that, well, let me just tell you. It's this self-imposed sort of arrogance who claims to be an insider of knowledge on spiritual matter, and Paul just says they're actually just puffed up, or we would say they're full of hot air, big-headed, and they're driven by a sensual mind. The reason Paul says this call for disqualification is unfounded is because it has everything to do with really a distortion of how we actually obtain genuine spiritual growth. Remember what we said, right desire wed to a wrong application? Paul says, look, what they're trying to lay upon you, and even if you're hearing that you are unfit or unclean or disqualified, the very mention of that sort of disqualification 
It exposes the absolute corruption of how you actually obtain growth in Christ. Notice the language in verse 19. Notice the imagery that's there. Christ is the head, nourishing body and joints and ligaments that are united or bound together. He mentions a growth, and specifically a growth that is from God. All of this imagery, all of this language has to do with a strengthening and a growth and a nourishment and a maturity that they want. But what does Paul say? The false teachers are promoting this very thing that you want, but the means by which they're insisting upon it is actually failing to lay hold of Christ. They are not holding fast to the head. So what Paul is saying is to listen to this is actually to replace Christ with the static visions of inner mystical experiences of God and to forfeit the actual means by which God has provided to grow in Christ. Do you see what Paul's concern is here? This persuasive teaching that you're hearing, it claims true spiritual growth through mystical experience, through the denial of earthly goods. But actually, this is attempting to grow by removing yourself from the very means by which God has provided for you to grow. Christ, who is the head. And now, what's so significant about verse 19 you think this through, is that when the church fails to hold fast to Christ, according to Paul's logic here, it also loses its unity. If by being nourished by the head and being united to him that the church grows and is knit together, that it's literally united, what happens when a church fails to hold fast to Christ? What happens when a church replaces Christ with some other method? or some other ideology. Well, not only do they short-circuit their own growth, what he's saying is that it actually short-circuits the unity of that body. Why? Because we're not just individuals getting heads filled with knowledge. We are individuals saved into Christ, and by Christ's design, we are being nourished so that we can strengthen one another. And so if we short-circuit our own strengthening, it's not just me and my cul-de-sac life that I'm living, but it's the network of relationships that I'm brought into, knit together as a member of Christ's body. This has massive ramifications for church health. This has massive ramifications for not just the individual, but an entire church. All nourishment comes from Christ who is the head, and he dispenses everything to every joint and every ligament. The local church can only grow insofar as every member is holding fast to Christ, recognizing that He, by my fact of being united to Him, is the way that I'm actually growing. So what does this mean? Let's put a sharper point on it. It means that if you're a Christian, you have this responsibility to hold fast to Christ. Now, we all know that underneath that, he is most certainly holding fast to me. But there is this response to where I'm saying, he is how I'm nourished. He is how I'm strengthened. Therefore, he is the one in whom I am focused upon. There's a direct link between the individual believer's spiritual health and the health of the body. 
means that each Christian joined to Christ in this nourishing, life-giving way where their faith and their understanding of the gospel and their relationship to God and one another is nourished and strengthened for the good of the body. For this reason, one of the things we're considering tonight, if you're a member here at Veritas Church, is the adoption of the church covenant that we've been considering and that we've taught through in this past year. At the heart of that church covenant is how we care for one another, how we're encouraging one another. One of the statements, one of the promises that we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. The instruction that Paul gives to this church Don't let anyone pass judgment upon you. The sort of regulation, the sort of program, the steps that you're hearing for spiritual growth, it does not have Christ at its center. And if Christ is not at the center, it's not real growth. That's the instruction. But he doesn't stop there. He gives some reasoning. Look back at verse 20. If, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Okay, so having laid out his instruction to resist false teaching, to refuse to come underneath these regulations, he now gives his reasoning for doing so. And essentially, Paul reasons, if this is true, why would you do this? And he gives two reasons. First thing, he says, it's inconsistent with who you are. Why would you do this? It's actually antithetical to who you are and what it means to be a Christian. Did you notice the if, why statement in verse 20? If you died with Christ to these elementary principles, why do you live as if you had not and submit to their regulations? He's trying to lay the incongruity of such a belief or a statement alongside. If this is true, why would you do this? These things don't go together. And it appears there was a bit of syncretism going on in Colossae as they attempted to to blend Old Covenant Jewish regulations with pagan worldly practices and what it means to be a follower of Christ. These regulations have no bearing, no relevance to promote growth. They have no obligation binding upon you. And yet you bring yourself underneath the burden of these requirements. If you died to Christ in these worldly and human traditions, why do you seek to live underneath them? To bring yourself under them is inconsistent with what it means to be in Christ. See verses 6 through 15. This was similar, though not identical, to a problem that was happening in the, the churches of the region of Galatia. You're close enough. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, 
How can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe, here it is, days and months and seasons and years. And then he says down in verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's essentially the same concern that Paul has for the church in Colossae in verse 21 of chapter 2. There is a sort of bondage that comes by observing these human teachings and the binding of the conscience of a Christian that's saying, look, true spiritual growth, it's going to come by you not tasting, not handling, not touching. If you really want to grow, you've got to come under this program. You've got to come under this regiment. And so what is Paul saying? If you died with Christ and you're united to him, it's absolutely inconsistent to bring yourself under some sort of shadowy regulations that point forward to the reality of who Christ is. It's not only inconsistent. He says in verse 23, it's actually useless to promote change. It's useless to promote change. The exclamation point, really, of this entire section is verse 23. If Paul had a mic, he would have dropped it right here. Paul says, ultimately, the very methods, teachings, practices, and habits that you're looking to enforce upon your life are useless. They have the appearance. They have the reputation of being world-changing, life-changing. But ultimately, they are of no value in accomplishing the thing you want. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the tragedy of the situation is that the Colossian church has a right impulse but a wrong conclusion. The indulgence of the flesh is a real and valid concern. Like we said, their impulse was right. Their concern is something that every Christian ought to be concerned about. They're not out in left field here. They're actually right at the very center of what needs to be the attention of every Christian. Just look down at Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The indulgence of the flesh is a valid concern. To not deal with these according to the teaching of Scripture means that you remain under the wrath of God. And if you are united to Christ and an heir and a son with Him, why would you want to continue to live in those things, the very sins that put Christ upon the cross? Their impulse was right. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh should be a concern of every brother and sister in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul's instruction to them, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, 
sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see the, the trap that the Colossians are in? They're hearing the same warnings of Scripture. They're looking at their life and saying, I don't want to continue just being enslaved to the lust of my flesh. The sensuality that our little town and our little church is in the middle of Colossae, I I just don't want to get swept up in that. Good desire, wrong application. Paul says, what is so tragic about this, and my reasoning for saying don't come under any of this, Not just because it's inconsistent. Brothers and sisters, it is useless to promote the change that you want to see. The aim of this false teaching is to neglect bodily needs to somehow sharpen your spiritual senses so that you have visionary experiences and a vital Christian growth. But actually, if you bring yourself under this, you're going to find that such harsh, harsh practices, while they look really appealing, they even have a reputation for being life changing they ultimately, Paul's words, are of no value. The external aesthetic regulations cannot prevent inner sinful desires or curbing self-indulgence. One translation says of verse 23, although these regulations have a reputation of wisdom, I think that's helpful, By promoting ascetic practices, humility, severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. We love to buy into things that have a good reputation. I always tell you, word of mouth is the best advertisement, right? Word of mouth was getting around. These practices, they have a great reputation. Did you hear what happened to Bob? Yeah, he was a complete derelict. Well, have you seen him now? He's a changed man. Really? What happened? Why don't you come Friday night? I'll tell you. There's a couple things that you might not be doing that you probably should be doing. A couple things that people say are good, but they're actually bad. And so we've, if, you, if you just follow this program, great reputation, but ultimately powerless to change. To say that these practices have an appearance of wisdom or a reputation for accomplishing what we desire, it's actually a very important insight into how we experience lasting change. Remember the gap that we mentioned earlier? The gap that we live in between conversion and future glory? That gap has to be filled with something. I always heard that saying, nature abhors a vacuum. I never understood what that means until I had a garage. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Look how clean it is. Come home from work the next day. How did all this get in here? We live in a gap. And don't think for a moment that the gap that you live in is not going to be filled with something you are going to adopt some practice, some belief system, some habit that is going to say, this is the way in which I will change. Even if you're not a Christian, 
you've adopted some practice, some belief system, some philosophy that says, look, this is who I am, but I don't want to be this way forever. I want to be whatever your vision of that is. You've adopted something to fill the gap between who you are and who you want to be. When Paul says that they have a reputation for being very effective, they have an appearance of wisdom. That should be our clue to remind ourselves that there is always going to be a temptation to fill that gap with something. It's never a vacuum. How do we live hearing that we're forgiven of sin and yet still living in a world corrupted by sin, recognizing the remaining corruption of sin in our own hearts? What do we do to deal with that? What I'm getting at here is that there's a large percentage of faithful Christians who have good desire but marry them to habits or programs or assumptions that are of no value to actually change them. To use the Apostle Peter's words, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's talking about the sort of people who end up ineffective and unproductive in their knowledge of Jesus Christ ineffective and unproductive in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. The sort of people who know the Lord, they might even know their Bibles better than you, but they fail to produce any sort of fruit or faith. Their lives, they're not defined by peaceful, loving relationships, the right sort of relationship between material things, by ongoing spiritual growth. Instead, these believers, as you look at them, they leave a trail of broken relationships, knowledge of God, but not very personal, perhaps drowning in lust, captivated by materialism. Something has gone wrong. Why? The problem is that we live in the gap between conversion and future glory. And as we said, the gap does not remain empty. Every single person in this room is seeking to close that gap between who they are and who they want to be with something. And we either fill that gap with the appearance of wisdom or the fullness of wisdom, which is Christ. And Peter, in 2 Peter, he diagnoses our problem with these words. That they are so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they are cleansed from their former sins. 2 Peter 1.9 Somebody who is so nearsighted that they have forgotten they were cleansed from their former sins. We're talking about Christians. Ineffective and unfruitful. Why? Gospel blindness. Forgetting that we're cleansed from our sin and we're blinded by our lack of faith, lack of virtue, self-control. That's what Peter mentions in the verses before. Lack of steadfastness, lack of brotherly affection. We limp along ineffective and unfruitful. So let's be really clear here. Why are so many Christians limping along in unfruitfulness? Because they've attempted to fill the gap with something other than the transformational reality of being in Christ. Could that be you? Well, what sort of things? Well, I assume it's a long list. I thought of a couple, looking at my own heart, listening to conversations I've had, 
What fills the gap that isn't Christ? I think formalism can be one. What I mean by that is the sort of person who fills their week with church gatherings, Bible studies, accountability groups, service to others. But for some reason, all these activities have little to no impact upon heart life, upon real change. Why? Well, formalism, it allows me to remain in control of my life, my time, and my agenda. I look busy on my terms. Formalism keeps me busy, but ultimately blind to my real sin and my real needs. The appearance of wisdom, but of no value in curbing the indulgence of the flesh. But maybe it's not formalism for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's legalism. You fill your life with rules and lists. Your way of evaluating yourself, how am I doing? Your spouse, others, co-workers has to do with adherence to rules, your rules. That means there's little joy in your life because there's no grace to celebrate, only duty to be done. Legalism, it's not just a reduction of the gospel, it's a false gospel that says salvation, security, comfort, assurance, that it comes and it's obtained by keeping the rules that we establish. It's the appearance of wisdom but of no value in curbing the indulgence of the flesh. Maybe it's mysticism for you. Formalism has absolutely no appeal. But experience, that's where it's at. It's the sort of person who lives for and is ruled by experience. The desire for authenticity and the fear of becoming formalism, it drives this person from one experience to the next experience The danger of mysticism is that it becomes the pursuit of experience rather than the pursuit of Christ. It too has an appearance of wisdom, but is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Activism? Can we fill the gap with that? The person who's best known for their causes and their cultural concerns? What's tricky about this one is that much of the protest of what they are against are valid concerns. Abortion. Rising LGBT influence within the church. Valid concerns. But when you look at their social media, their bumper stickers, their hats, their slogan-filled t-shirts, you get the impression that their causes define what it means to be a Christian. And upon closer examination, you find activism is just more of a defense of what is right rather than a joyful resting in Christ. The appearance of wisdom, but no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Beloved, postmodernism, political power, sexual perversion, these are not the greatest threat to the church of Christ in our day. In fact, these sort of cultural threats are not even new. It's what the church has been living in since inception. Honestly, historically, the far greater dangers are the subtle lies that flow from the incremental shifts in how we define and understand the gospel. 
far greater danger for the church of Christ. And you may not have forsaken the faith, but have you redefined it in such a way that it minimizes Christ and elevates something else? That is dangerous. That will ruin not only your own life, but the health of the church. All the various isms that we could fill the gaps with in our Christian living, they're so attractive because they only emphasize one aspect of Scripture, one aspect of truth divorced from so many other ones. They also appeal to the the spiritual or moral problems that we happen to be concerned with in our day. Every ism also appeals to my selfishness because I love to be at the center of the universe. I love to be in control of the agenda. And so if my means for change is this ism, then I'm in the driver's seat changing myself. But the scriptures are really clear. The only way that we live is actually to die unto self. And the only way that we change is to repent of sin and to believe in Christ, who is the one who actually brings new birth, new affections, new abilities. When the good news is reduced to just a few isms, where I choose the most attractive or the most comfortable or the least disruptive strategy to bring change, I then twist Christianity to my own terms, and sadly, I remain, in Peter's words, ineffective and unfruitful. You see, it has all the appearance of wisdom, but it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So how does God grow us and change us? This is the concern of Colossians. It's the call of Christ to you and I this morning. Back at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How do we grow? How are we changed? We recognize who we are and who Christ is. We keep building upon what we've been built into. We keep growing into which which we've been implanted into. We keep moving and understanding those two themes. Who am I? Who is Christ? What does it mean that he's the mediator? What does it mean that he's, he's come as the Savior? What does it mean that he represents me before the Father? What does it mean that his death was the substitutionary provision for my sin, when we begin to move not just into the shallows of those things, but to meditate upon those things and to ask helpful questions and apply those things, we are enamored with the grace and the glory of who Christ is. Is it any wonder that chapter 3, verse 1 begins with what we probably know so well, if then you've been raised with Christ Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is exactly where Paul's going. Do you want to change? It's not going to be that. I don't care its reputation. If it's supplementing Christ or even replacing Christ, it will be of no value. We've kept referencing Peter's concern in 2 Peter 1. Hear the announcement in the call of Scripture. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That sounds like something that's for someone who's concerned about how they live in the gap between conversion and glory. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, the good news of the gospel is the same Christ that saves us and forgives us. It's the same means for continued growth and change. It's the same Christ that we shall enjoy forever in our glorified bodies for all eternity. How we begin is how we're changed and what we shall be. Is there any reason that the church has clung to this recent hymn and anthem of saying, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ? Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That's not the song of somebody saying like, well, all I have is Christ. It's a declarative, all that I have is Christ. That is somebody who's discovered that the gap is really to be in Christ. What fills between conversion and glory is this reality of Christ fills the substance of it. It's just me realizing how full it actually is. Realizing what it means to be in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the promise of change, for the hope of restoration and glory to come. May God continue to give to us this persistent insistence upon Christ alone. And may he change us for his purposes. Would you pray with me along those ends? Father, we're so relieved to hear that you love us enough to warn us how easy it is to become deluded in thinking that we can become the ones who determine our change and choose how we grow from one measure of fullness into another. But thank you for the good news of Scripture that reminds us and declares to us that not only do you promise change, but that you are the one who enables it. So, Lord, we pray that we would continue to be those who are found faithfully resting, receiving, and accepting all that is ours in Christ, that we might continue to grow thereby unto it, that you would continue to root us and ground us in all the great and precious promises. And, Father, that we would know that that wonderful experience of, of Titus 2, of grace coming into our lives, and that same grace teaching, training, conforming us to the image of your Son. Lord, we pray that the gospel would resonate loudly and strongly and vividly in our lives, that through that grace you might continue to call us to greater and greater obedience, the desire to love and live for you, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.